0: We're functional. All it, had to, all it had to do was show up and it fixed, right? Uh, okay. Um, so, you know, last week we looked at the cross of Christ. We looked at the work of Christ. Why did he have to go to the cross? Uh, what did he endure while he was on the cross? What did it accomplish for us? How it removes wrath, how it sets us free, all those other things. And as we look to the cross and all those things we talked about last week, we're going to start tonight and over the next few weeks Begin looking at how does all of that get applied to an individual. How does someone, what is involved when someone uh, comes to life in Jesus Christ? We're going to cover two topics tonight. Next week we're going to be covering two more. Uh, but tonight we'll be looking at the ideas of looking at salvation, one from God's initiative and the other from human response. Or if we're thinking about it theologically, uh, regeneration and conversion. Uh, These two ideas are what we're going to talk about tonight. And I had a slide up here. Oh, it's giving me the error code again. Hopefully we're going to be all right. See, Ben left, and now it's acting up again. So, um, but I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word regeneration. I have a a lizard up here. It's not a word regeneration that we tend to use very often, um, particularly in the way it's used in terms of Christian teaching, like we're going to be talking about tonight, but in terms of living organisms, regeneration of tissue uh, is when you know, so there's been damage or loss and the body regrows something. So there are some lizards, like this one perhaps you've seen, that can regrow an entire tail and this is known as reptile tail regeneration. That's what I learned this week, all right? And no doubt this is a helpful power to possess, but it only goes so far. Wouldn't it be fun if we had this skill? Wouldn't it be great at the door as I'm greeting people and saying goodbye, welcome, for, and thank you for coming, and whoop, off goes my hand with them and out grows another. Uh, it could be very big, wonderful jokes that could happen with that. Anyway, um, but the power only goes so far, right? Because no living organism can self-regenerate when no life exists at all. But regeneration, in terms of Christian teaching, entails life being infused to those who are dead. Regeneration is therefore something that God does alone to bring spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. So spiritual death is a condition to which we are all subject and in need of outside source of life, outside of ourselves, to overcome that condition. So we're going to turn to our first passage for the evening. It should be following along on the sheets you have on the table. Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, feel free, but it is on the screen as as I can see here, so this is great. This is working. And Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, said this, "'As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So what does this mean? Because he says you were dead in your transgressions. What does spiritual death mean? It may seem strange because as we read this, Paul tells the Ephesians, in one breath they were dead but were at the same time living in that condition. So spiritual death obviously can't mean a cessation of existence, but rather a condition, a state of existence. What was the state? That they were living in a state of separation from the life of God and in opposition to the will of God. If you notice, let's listen to, we'll, we'll try to underline here and see if this works. I know I'm going for broke here, but I'm going to give it a try. All right? It says, look at these things. He says that you followed the ways of this world. How else is he saying? You are disobedient. He says you are gratifying the cravings of the flesh. And then he says that you are following its desires and thoughts. And with this, he says this is like by nature. This is just what you do. You have to think about it, it's natural. And so we find a picture developing here that can be difficult to accept about the impact of sin upon us as human beings and it's such that we not only lack spiritual life we've been disconnected from the life of God because of our sin but sin's influence is so extensive that we are incapable in and of ourselves to address the situation and turn to God in any meaningful way God is the one who brings the dead to life and we call this spiritual reality regeneration And the New Testament also speaks of regeneration as the new birth. So we're going to go to John chapter 3 uh, next, and you may be very familiar with this passage. Um, We we cited it later verses last week in John 3.16, which are very familiar to many of us. But that verse comes from this dialogue that Jesus was having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and Jesus interrupts his questioning of Jesus with a statement saying very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus then asked how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born and Jesus answered very truly I tell you So here's Jesus instructing Nicodemus on what is essential to enter, what's essential to even see the kingdom of God. And he spoke of the need for new life, of regeneration. And the imagery of new birth is essential in us grasping our dilemma with sin and understanding of the need for regeneration and an important dynamic of it. So think of birth. I didn't circle them. I won't attempt that again. I'm not going to push my luck here. But... If you were to look at this, the number of references to birth or being born, they're, they're throughout this passage, they permeate it. When we think of babies, we've had some, uh, this, this surge of babies in the life of the church recently. They're all, it's wonderful, they're all over the place. Um, but babies, when we think about they don't really contribute anything to their conception, development, and eventual delivery at birth, do they? It's kind of a paid-for, all-inclusive for them. It's pretty much a one-way relationship in that they are completely dependent on outside forces for being brought into life. So the imagery of new birth is useful in that no amount of human effort or desire can bring about what we so desperately need, and that is regeneration. It's not of our will. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now we're going to talk about this idea of receiving him and conversion in a bit because it's touching on that here. But, it, but this next second half, don't miss it. miss. Children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So, notice that the origin of new life, being born as a child of God, is ultimately determined by Him, not by human decision or will. That the ultimate decision in new birth, the one who wills regeneration, is God. <clears throat> it's not something that we, any of us can contribute to in, in any way, nor is the ultimate decision regarding it within our power to make, which leads us to a challenging but important question to consider. We'll touch on it tonight, but we're going to cover it more in future weeks. How does faith fit into this process? Or to put it another way, what comes first? You know the old saying, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, what comes first, regeneration or faith? We'll touch on that a little bit tonight, so we'll explore the dynamics of it more in in future weeks, but I I would say this to begin with. What we're talking about here and trying to understand are dynamics of the new birth that are, to say the very least, somewhat mysterious to us. I'm talking about it in categories and trying to help us understand how the pieces fit together, so to speak. But even Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so we're trying to wrap our heads around dynamics that include what God is doing in regeneration, which should, should automatically say if we're trying to wrap our heads around something that God is doing, it's, it's beyond us to some extent. But also what is happening when people respond in faith. Now all of this we're assessing from our limited perspective. What is it that Mike said this morning? Most of our our noses don't get above six feet throughout our lifetime, you know, without some physical assistance, right? Our perspective is limited in so many ways. And we see all of this occurring in a particular way because we base it based off what we see. But the picture coming into focus from Scripture is that all people are so thoroughly impacted by sin That we are so thoroughly corrupted by it that we're unable to remedy the situation in any way on our own that in order to even positively be inclined towards God to choose him, something must happen within us first for that to happen. Now this may seem like an unimportant hypothetical consideration that only people to seminary give a hoot about. But as we study salvation in future weeks, I hope you will find it has a tremendous significance for you. Because what is it ultimately that your salvation and mine depends upon? Is God sitting by waiting for people to respond to him, in a sense, leaving things dependent on them? Would you want that after that description I just read in Ephesians chapter 2 of our spiritual condition? of things being dependent upon us? Or is God the one taking the initiative with salvation with everything ultimately dependent upon him? And how we answer this will change how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we approach the Christian life. And note that I use that word life because this idea of regeneration is about the life of God coming into somebody. So it's not an abstract theological concept. This idea of God's life coming into the heart of a person, eternal life coming into those who are dead. When we understand this dynamic of salvation, we should expect some measure of life transformation. Regeneration will always be accompanied by transformation. I was reading a book called Tell the Truth. It's one of my favorite books on evangelism. I was reviewing it this week and the author Will Metzger says this, God's sovereign saving grace is what empowers the dead will of sinners and gives them a new heart too. A total spiritual rebirth. Will, mind, and affections are renewed with a heart aflame with the love of Christ. The will now desires to return this with love for Christ. Now enabled to choose right, the newly born spiritual baby does the work God requires which is to believe in the one he has sent. So regeneration is the view of salvation more from the divine perspective. What's happening on the the God side of things and God's initiative in salvation. But what about the human response? What we see. So we've talked about God's initiative. We've touched on that. The human response is what we refer to as conversion And what do we need to know about that? It brings our attention more on what could be viewed as that human element in response to God's initiative. It's our response. Put simply, conversion carries the idea of turning. Turning from something to something, or in this case, from something to someone. Acts chapter 26, I would like us to read together. If you want to turn there, feel free. It's going to be on the screen as well. So, um, Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul uh, is um, being encouraged, the words of the Lord Jesus, and he says, uh uh-oh, he didn't say uh uh-oh, sorry. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, you're in trouble, Paul. No, he says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And then he says, I'm sending you to them to... What's on my screen is not what's on your screen. Just know that, okay? Um, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now there are several components here that we'll come back to in the course of this evening in a few moments, but note first the main idea of turning, of turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God. Turning is one of the root ideas in the word we're going to consider tonight of repentance. And we see this connected with faith in this passage for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have two key dynamics here going on in conversion, in, in human response which on the one hand are, is repentance and the other, other one of faith. And We see these dynamics earlier in the book of Acts in Paul's description of his ministry among the Ephesians. If I can do this, come on! If you guys can control it up in the room and go to the one for Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty to twenty-one, that would be great. <clears throat> Acts chapter twenty, verses twenty to twenty-one, and it's on the screen. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now just stop a moment. I want to point out something interesting. At least it's interesting for me, and in confession, I only really thought about it this afternoon. Because earlier we read Paul's words from a later letter to the Ephesians describing what happened in their salvation, emphasizing God's initiative. But here he is in Acts Telling them what was the essence of the gospel message he preached to them that they responded to. And it is the experience of the Ephesians that we're getting a glimpse at in both sides of the coin of salvation here. Because there was God's initiative, but their response. And what was that he preached to them was their necessary response. To repent. And to have faith in the Lord Jesus. Regeneration and conversion. That divine initiative and the human response. So let's just focus a little bit more on this human response, which again is referred to, we're talking about conversion. It's a response to sin, that turning from sin and turning to God, and it's a matter of engaging the whole person. What I mean by that is, in essence, the mind, the motions, the emotions that make, make some of us feel a little uncomfortable in the room right now, the fact that we're to respond with emotion, and the will. So if we go back to the passage in Acts chapter 26, that would be helpful. Remember when Jesus is speaking to Paul and he says to them, I, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. The phrase opening of eyes indicates becoming aware of certain truths and realities. So this is a, you know, a cognitive dimension. This is stuff they need to get and understand, dealing with the mind. But in that same expression... Along with the idea of turning is also a sense of the role and involvement of the emotions and the will in conversion. You think about the words of uh, opening the eyes, there's this, and to turn. There's, there's something more going on than just understanding at a mental level. There's, there's an acceptance and an appreciation to such a degree that there's a, a turning of the will. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. If you guys can put it on the screen, that would be great. Where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Then this here's the words I want us to focus in on. Let the wicked forsake their ways, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. In this passage, there's this word forsake. It's the key term to consider as a, a, like a similar term for repentance and it touching both upon a choice of the will but also the mind. So look, what did it say? The, the words that the turn of phrase was let the unrighteous turn from their thoughts but it's also the will. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Now forsake is a bit of a charged expression that describes a response that includes not only thoughts and and things like that, but it's, it's pretty emotive as well. For an example, think of Jesus hanging on the cross and what were some of his last words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When later in Hebrews that we're going through, he says, let your heart be free from the love of money for never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Forsaking someone has the idea of abandonment, doesn't it? This idea of, there's an emotive element to that. And, and Jesus is saying this, this um, actually this, this passage in Isaiah, that, that word forsaking um, carries a bit more of an emotive meaning to it. And sometimes there can be a tendency To avoid anything that seems too emotional when it comes to spiritual things. And in fairness, there may be some of us in the room that feel that way. But in fairness, this is likely due to some who place too much emphasis on the emotions to the neglect of the mind and the will as well. This is why I say it's a whole person thing. There's an old evangelist once who was from Texas who told me this, and I've taken it as good advice. He said, son, beware of anything that minimizes the emotions in general, but especially in terms of conversion. He said, run from anything that tells you emotion is wrong. It's just not the standard. It's a part of how God made us. And in fact, how many of your most important decisions in life have not just been calm, cool, and calculating? Some of the most important decisions we make, we are moved to make them. Our will is working with our mind and our emotions for a whole person response. It's how God made us and it's the key to many of our choices If you guys could go to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 37. I've abandoned trying to control and I'm just appealing up there for them to go to the right verse. And if you guys want to turn your Bibles, feel free. But it captures this idea as Peter in Acts chapter 2 is preaching. And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, what does it say? They were cut To the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see those two things working in conjunction there. Their emotions, they were cut to the heart, and it led them to ask a question of the will. Or you can think of Paul's words regarding the healthy response of sorrow when we intellectually grasp the truth of our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10, he says, You became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's not just sorrow that doesn't lead anywhere, <laughs> but a sorrow that leads to repentance. And in repentance, we need to envision, again, what I'm trying to portray here is a, a holistic response that encompasses understanding certain truths, yes, at an intellectual level, and acknowledging the validity of these truth claims, but it must go further to include our emotions to some degree and the will as we are moved to a decision to respond to Jesus. A distinction there. That there are valid truth claims that you can claim are true and never respond to Jesus. If these things are true, you need to ask yourself, what does this mean for me? How is one to respond? And all of these things will involve not just thoughts. It has to include thoughts. But there's going to be conflict in the soul of values and competing things and and the decision to trust in Jesus. It involves repentance that is accompanied by faith. Faith being that personal response to Jesus. I want to just read another quote from that book I mentioned earlier about repentance and faith. And it says repentance without faith will lead to sorrow and mere legalistic resolutions. You feel bad about what you've done and you endeavor to do better. Faith without repentance is unfounded optimism leading to self-deception. But as J.I. Packer so aptly puts it, mere credence without trusting and mere remorse without turning do not save. Conversion requires True repentance and a faith that equates to trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He is the sole object of saving faith. Think of Jesus' invitations as he walked the earth Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus criticized the Pharisees and teachers of the law because they searched the scriptures, but what did they refuse to do? Come to him. And when someone does come to him, when they are converted, when there is repentance and there is faith, the change again is inevitable. We looked at it earlier from the divine perspective of life coming in, but think of this now from the human perspective. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Apostle Paul writing says, What then shall shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. Here's this transformation again. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now your allegiance see when the whole person is converted mind, emotions, will when that spiritual life of God comes in it will be demonstrated in life transformation or you may hear us toss this phrase around here in church world called gospel transformation why? because of a new heart there's a new life that has a new attitude to the Lord and to his righteousness and from where did that come? Where did this new heart come from? From him. From regeneration and conversion. And so I hope you can see why an understanding of regeneration and conversion is not simply an abstract theological discussion. It has enormous implications for not only our lives, but for others as well. And I just want to kind of pull this together with these few thoughts. In my life, at least, it has transformed the way I view myself, how I view people who have yet to come to faith in Christ. It helps transform the way I view the gospel. How? Because at the core of the Christian gospel is not a pathway to moral improvement. The heart of the Christian gospel is not a place for, ultimately, for us to belong, though it is. The Christian gospel is uniquely powerful because it is what God uses to call those who are spiritually dead to life. Which is what people need. More than anything. They need spiritual life. We're we're spiritually dead without him. And God in his providence, this is going back to last time when we, we talked about God's providence. God is the one who ordains all things and he uses Secondary means he uses us to accomplish his purposes. And what has he chosen to accomplish this purpose of salvation? The preaching of his word and our witness. And he uses that in his will that we, it's mysterious to us, to bring life to those who are dead. He did that for me when I was 11 years old. (laughs) at a Bible camp in northern New Jersey in the United States. I didn't know what was happening. I thought there was just some guy telling me I needed forgiveness and eternal life, and I had to put my trust in Jesus and receive that. Little did I know behind the scenes was God's sovereign plan working out through my life to lead me to that moment and open my heart and bring me to life. It included the prayers of God's people, including the prayers of my wife when she was eight years old, being taught to pray for the salvation of her future husband. Our prayers, our witness, all these things stitched together. It's God's ordained means, his word. Peter wrote in his epistle, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this was the word that was preached to you. How does it change the way we view the gospel? It changes in that there's an authority inherent in the gospel, His authority. It is the power of God for salvation. When we grasp, that all people are spiritually dead and the power of God is at work through the gospel as the only means to bring life, I find that personally motivating. And our confidence can increase knowing that it is God ultimately who calls the dead to life. And this is not an excuse for not engaging people's questions or doubts or discussing objections. These are part of God's sovereign process as well. But it's, it's this cool sense of resting that It's not our cleverness. It's not our ability to connect or be cool or whatever that brings life. It is his word, his spirit. And so as we think about this idea of regeneration and conversion, I hope it makes you think of God's greatness and this mystery of salvation, yes. But what I hope it does more than anything is make you think How does God want to use me? How does God want to use this church so that those who are dead can come to life? And perhaps our discussion tonight has made some, just perhaps, some think about the nature of their own response to Jesus and the gospel. And I'll just finish with this. May I encourage you to consider that what we've covered tonight, all of that, and ask whether you have truly been converted to Jesus. Through a lot of experience, I've come to the conclusion that there are many churches just like ours with people who have been converted to worship services, people who have been converted to community, people who have been converted to Bible studies, but perhaps not ultimately to Jesus. And so I was thinking of this old song we used to sing in my church when I was a young man, and it may sound a bit peculiar knowing that God is ultimately the one who brings life, but it's still relevant. Jesus' invitation tonight is the same that it was when he walked the earth. Come to me. Come home. So I'll read these words, and we'll pray. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See, on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh, sinner, come home. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, thought of your work on the cross last week and all of that's wonderful, but if we don't come to terms and a response to that in light of what we discussed tonight, to know that all that cross was, was necessary in order that you might extend this invitation to us tonight. To come home. To turn from that which has brought death and destruction and enslavement. And to find forgiveness and life in you. To turn in faith and trust to you. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts this night. Whether that is a renewed sense of responsibility and passion and joy in speaking of you, speaking the words of the gospel to those who need to hear it. And Lord, for those perhaps in the sound of my voice in this room tonight who are wondering in their heart and soul their need to respond to you. And so Lord, this night I pray they would not wait, they would not leave without that sense of saying yes to you to respond to that invitation that you give lord jesus to come home thank you that we can have that invitation because of what you've done for us please continue to meet with us as we sing and finish our time together in jesus name amen